0: And now, Lord, in this hour, by the kindness of your mercy and your grace, will you take human words and set them apart by your Spirit and make them your very own. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to wrestle this morning with Isaiah 58, so you can look at that in your your worship bulletin. I I have a, a, a... fantasy in my mind where uh, Emily Dickinson offers some advice to Isaiah, tell the truth, but tell it slant, she says, and there's a lot of wisdom in those words, but I I can imagine her saying that to Isaiah, Isaiah, have you ever thought about telling the truth slant, you know, rounding off the corners a bit, the hard edges, maybe softening the blow, Isaiah perhaps a more surreptitious approach that plants a seed but leaves people scratching their heads. And then Isaiah responds, well, no, I've actually never thought about talking the truth in that way. In fact, I like to tell the truth and and to tell it straight. It's more my style. I'm more Flannery O'Connor, I guess, than Emily Dickinson. You know O'Connor's famous line, to the heart of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you use large and startling pictures. The picture of Isaiah 58 this morning is large and startling. Shout it aloud, says God. Don't hold back. The prophetic word is given a full green light from God himself, who gives a compelling and a troubling word for his people. And here we are today, on this Sunday morning, some several millennia removed, and we hear these ancient words again. And God is shouting in our midst this morning. He's not holding back. And he has something to say to you, and he has something to say to me. And I'm afraid it's not a pat on the back. It's not a reinforcement of our basic religious instincts. In fact, the opposite is the case. The God of Israel, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, The God whom we praise week in and week out as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he wants you to know something this morning. He wants you to know that he despises religion. He hates it. He has less than zero interest in human attempts at religiosity or spirituality. In fact, few things ignite the ire of the prophets more than comfortable or arrogant religiosity. And I should say that Jesus operated in the self-same prophetic spirit. Few matters set Jesus on edge more than self-congratulatory or self-confident religiosity. God hates religion. And the patterns are so clear in this text this morning. You know, verse 2, if you look at it in your handout, intimates a very positive view of faithful piety. You know, in fact, I'm not sure there's a better description of faithful Christians than verse 2. For day after day they seek me out. They are eager to know my ways. To seek God is the language of the Old Testament's liturgy. This is the language that mirrors Israel's worship. You said to Jacob, said the psalmist, seek my face. And your face, O Lord, did we seek. But it's the next words in these verses, in verse 2 of Isaiah 58, that undercut the whole enterprise. It's the next phrase that reveals the self-serving character of this seeking. You did all this, says the prophet, as if. As if you were a nation who did righteousness and justice. Now I could easily get lost in Isaiah at this point. But the prophet is building here in chapter 58 off of the larger movement of the book. For righteousness in Isaiah 40 to 55 is given as a gift. It's God's servant in Isaiah 53. Think our reading on Good Friday. It's our servant whose righteous actions are the effect that make many people righteous. And to use Reformation language, it's, the passive gift of God's righteousness in Isaiah 40 to 55 that provides the basis and the motivation for active calls to righteousness and justice. And the prophet is calling us fade a spade here. You act as if. Listen to the transactional understanding of religion that's going on here in this text. The prophet says, They ask me for just decisions. In other words, they want God to come to their aid. God make things right. Bring justice and order. Make those crooked paths of our lives straight. They're not wanting God to act as if. They want God to act on their behalf. And why would God do this for them? Why does the nation think they have any leverage with the divine? What notion of religion is fueling their idea that the king of Zion will come off his throne and aid them. Well, again, the text tells us because we fasted. Haven't you noticed, God? Haven't you seen it? I mean, we've gone through all of our fasting and we've humbled ourselves. And why would we do that, God, if if you haven't taken any notice? We've attended to our religious duty. And these actions actually cost us something, God. You know, we're in the, in the year of the Reformation. And we're talking about it a lot around the church this year, and rightly so. This particular view of God's grace that we see in the first three verses of Isaiah 58 dominated medieval Christianity. And really, it was the catalyst that set much of the Reformation in motion. God becomes a banker whose treasure troves are, are filled with grace and forgiveness. And the clergy, they become debt brokers... Offering withdrawals from god 's bank account whenever debts are paid for either, either by religious observance or even better you know the transference of funds and we heard from Andrew Atherstone this past week. I, I happened to hear on Monday night talking about the rampant immorality among the clergy during this period of church history. They all affirmed clerical celibacy, but they kept they kept um, i 'll do scare quotes here uh, cooks and Uh, housemaids, uh, who were, in effect, concubines as well. Illegitimate children of the clergy was a real problem of this period. And the bishops, who had their own issues as well, frankly, were willing to turn a blind eye if the clergy made a payment of some sort. You see, God's a banker, and we're debtors. And payments can be brokered for debts to be released. And Isaiah thunders, no. Keep it. I hate it. I don't want your religion. I don't want your pretty singing. I don't want your offerings. I don't want your Sabbath worship. You can keep your liturgy to yourself. If by attending to these activities you think for a second that I'm assuaged or I'm impressed or that they will be the cause to initiate my grace. Have you forgot my servant who died for you just five chapters before? your transactional view of religion it's not even a house of cards this text is a wake-up call to the religious mark are you a religious person people ask me that question they ever ask you that question are you a religious person and i guess my honest answer is yes i am a religious person and that's a very big part of what makes me so very bad Well. Isaiah's not done. He opens a spotlight on a particular problem of these religiously observant people in order to show them that they're really not as religious as they think they are. Is this the kind of fast that I've chosen? Asked the prophet. Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast that's pleasing to God? No, says the Lord. I want fasting that includes the loosing of the chains of injustice and oppression. I want a fast that shares its food and clothes the naked and provides shelter for the poor wanderer. I want the kind of fast that cares about the bonds of family. The call to look outward always runs the risk of upsetting the comfort of our own religiosity. And the rich man walked away troubled because he had many possessions. Yes, it's upsetting. And we have so many stories from the 20th century that witness to this reality in our midst. Think about Dachau prison camp right on the outskirts of a middle-class town. Think of the haunting memories and reality of racial injustice in our own city, as clean-cut people go to church Sunday after Sunday. And I'm right with him. The prophets are clear. God doesn't want your liturgy to be a Sunday morning affair. I want the implications of my grace and my electing love toward you, the fast, the fact that I rescued you from the tyranny and oppression of sin, I want that to be the memory that fuels and excites the whole of your existence. I want the good news announced back in chapter 52 and 53 to permeate the whole of your life. For what else is justice from a biblical perspective than the love of God gone public? When the radical nature of the free grace given to sinful humanity... When his electing love that moved toward you first and raised you from your spiritual death or broke you free from the chains of sin's oppression and guilt and wrath. When this love, the love that makes us speechless once again when its full implications come home to rest. It's this love that becomes the key to unlock our chains, to open our blind eyes, to see the world around us in new ways. So we yearn for God's love to go public and to shape how we view those who are above us and those who are below us in the social constructs of our culture and our world. Our being made right by his kind and gracious initiative becomes a critical tool by which we think of and make sense of the political and the cultural noise going all around us. Does the kindness And the grace of God shown to me the least of these free me to see the world through the same lens of grace and love, such as the concern of justice. Sometimes we need a shout from the prophet. Oftentimes we need our religiosity checked. Because if you and I are left on autopilot without the grace of continual repentance... How quick we are to rely on our religious efforts and our instincts and our rituals. How easy it is to turn our faith into a, a brokering match with God where a series of personal checks and balances keeps us in a state of religious equilibrium. We become copacetic and comatose all at the same time. Well, Isaiah 58, and you don't have this this morning in your, in your bulletin or your worship guide, Isaiah 58 turns into Isaiah 59. That's your homework assignment for the week. You have to read that. Listen to verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot say, or his ear dulled that it cannot hear. You see, the prophetic announcement in chapter 58 has now had its full and proper effect. The exposing of sin has now led to confession and redemption. Listen to verse 12. This is the people now saying, Our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are within us. We know our iniquities. Listen to verse 15. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man. So what does he do? His own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on the righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Verse 20, and to a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgressions and sin. You see, the self assured of Isaiah 58 have a clear view of themselves right now. There is no justice in us, we do grope around like dead people. Our hands are stained with blood. Our offenses are many in your sight. What do we do with no justice? There's no one to intervene. So what does God do in chapter 59? What God always does. He rolls up his sleeves and he goes to battle himself. His own arm achieves salvation. His own righteousness sustains him. Jesus girds himself for battle in these chapters. He puts his foot on the neck of the evil of this world, and he promises to always come to those who repent, who turn to him. Isn't it fascinating to read in our gospel reading this morning, Jesus described as having fulfilled all the law and the prophets, the instructing word of the law, and the thunderous rapture and rupture of the prophets make their sense and their force known and felt through Jesus Christ alone. And when we're seized by this good word of gospel promise, when our prayer, there is no health in us, meets the life and death of Jesus Christ, then we're free, chains full. Prison doors begin to fling open And new eyes were given to us to see the world, to see our culture, to think about our political body, our public discourse, our relationship to our neighbors, our concern for the poor, the stranger, the alien, in ways shaped by the grace of God given to us in our poverty, in our identity as strangers and aliens. For we were without hope in the world, And Cranmer, in his construction of the liturgy, I guess he wanted us to remember it every week. And let not the hope of the poor be taken away. Isaiah the prophet wants you and me to know something this morning. By the life and death of Jesus Christ, we are free from our damned and our cursed religiosity. And this freedom releases us to take God's love public. Amen.